I'd like to thank the media team who uh, work hard on our behalf every, every Sunday. Uh, some things are out of their control and uh, they feel the weight of that and the pressure of it and the responsibility and then um, they've got to try to manage the situation. I think they've done it very well today. So uh, well done team. Hopefully get the gremlins out of the system in future, uh, certainly by next week. But um, again, we appreciate uh, those who uh, uh, help the service. <coughs> Well, today we're going to conclude our short series on the uh, qualities of a healthy church. Uh, we'll actually be uh, returning to the book of Genesis uh, next Sunday morning. Um, back to Genesis chapter 5 uh, next Sunday morning. But as we uh, wrap up uh, this uh, Sunday morning series on uh, the qualities of a healthy church, we do so by considering the second ordinance that God has given to the church. Last time we considered the Lord's Supper. And today our focus is on baptism. There never was a greater communicator than the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's very significant that he has spoken the gospel unto us in words, but also in pictures. And he's chosen two pictures which are incredibly simple, yet wonderfully profound. They communicate across every generation and every culture. And of course, like the best illustrations, they are taken from the most ordinary things in life. And if you wanted to summarise the Christian faith, you can do it easily in two pictures. One of taking a bath and having a meal. You can boil it down to those two things, the tub and the table. The Christian faith is about getting washed and getting fed. And every mother knows that a newborn baby needs to be washed and needs to be fed. And that continues through all of life. You need to be washed and you need to be fed. And what is true of our bodies is also true of our souls, our inner life. My inner life needs to be washed. My inner life needs to be fed. And that's what Jesus Christ does to every person who comes to him in faith. He washes us and he feeds us. If Christ hasn't washed you, then you couldn't even begin the Christian life. If Christ didn't feed you, you'd never sustain the Christian life. So Christ takes these two wonderful pictures of a bath and a meal, the tub and a table, and he makes them the basis of two wonderful gifts that he gives to the church, the ordinances of the Lord's Supper, which we considered last time, and the ordinance of baptism, which we consider this morning. Now, we've just come off the uh, Women's Soccer World Cup. And now for the next month or so, it's going to be the NRL and the AFL finals. And I'm sure you've all seen football fans who paint their faces the colour of their favourite team. Some devotees either even shave the name of their team into their haircuts. Other people have been so fanatical about their team and their teams playing in the finals or whatever, they've even postponed their honeymoons. All in the name of team loyalty. However, none of those expressions of devotions can compare with the support that Giles Pellerin has for his team. <clears throat> that is the USC football team, that's the University of Southern California, American football team. In 1996, Pellegrin, age 87, attended his 750th consecutive USC football game. 
Never missed a single game home or away for 69 years. One year he had emergency surgery to remove his appendix just five days before the game. Still in hospital on Saturday, he told his nurses he was going for a walk and instead went to the stadium to see his beloved team. Why make such sacrifices to identify with a football team? Pellegrin's answer was, quote, that's just all part of being a fan. Now, of course, normal people don't go to Pellegrin's extremes. And yet there are millions of people throughout the world whose actions prove that they do agree. Part of being a fan means openly demonstrating your dedication. But if you ask many Christians to publicly identify themselves with Jesus Christ in the way that Jesus said he wants us to identify with him, they will think it strange and extreme or unreasonable. Some feel very self-conscious about such public displays of devotion. Now, that's a common response to the idea of baptism. Some Christians who do profess to love the Lord consider baptism insignificant or inconsequential or something to think about some other time. Well, how important is it? Why should anyone seek baptism in a local church? Why should local churches practice baptism? What does baptism do? What are the biblical reasons to be baptised? Well, the Bible is very clear on the subject. There are many verses that explain the reason and there are verses that sent forth the principles behind baptism and I've listed some of the reasons and the principles there on your outline sheet that you can follow along with this morning. But the first reason I'd like to put before you is this, that baptism openly identifies you as a follower of Jesus Christ. As you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, it becomes very, very clear that baptism was part of Jesus' ministry and also part of our mission. Baptism is not man's idea, it's God's idea. It's not a denominational thing, it's a biblical thing. God started it with John the Baptist at the beginning of the Gospels. Matthew chapter 3 verse 11 says that John came to baptise you in water unto repentance. And baptism then continued in the ministry of Jesus himself. John chapter 4 verse 1, we read, Jesus baptised more disciples than John. Although verse 2 tells us that it was actually Jesus' disciples, not Jesus himself, who did the baptising. But this practice was then picked up by the church, not because of their own wisdom, but because of the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus said, Matthew chapter 28, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Go ye therefore and disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So Jesus made baptism part of his ministry and part of the mission that he gave to us. So baptism was and is the Christ-ordained way of openly identifying yourself to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, baptism doesn't make you right with God. The water of baptism doesn't wash away the guilt of your sin because of disobedience to God's commands. Rather, 
It is the grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ that brings us into God's family and favour. It's the grace of God through the personal work of Christ and us simply believing by faith in the grace of God and the work of Christ. That's the thing that brings about forgiveness of sin. But that doesn't mean that baptism is unimportant. Although baptism is never the means of salvation in the Bible, it is closely associated with it in the New Testament. For example, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached. Acts chapter 2 verse 41 records what he said to some of his listeners. Or sorry, it records the response of some of his listeners. So he preached, and this is their response, and they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. When Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 9 verse 18 records that after that he became a believer, then he arose and was baptized. Later when Paul was in prison at Philippi, the jailer implored him, what must I do to be saved? And the answer that Paul gave, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. That is, if your whole household believe, they will also be saved. And that's exactly what happened. And then verse 33 says that they were then they were baptized. He and all of his, all of his family straight away. So baptism was and is. A public expression of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a public expression of faith by those who are willing to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour. One author put it this way. Baptism is a testimony to the world. Their gaze is not to be discouraged. Our Lord was baptised in public. The baptism at Pentecost were not secret Baptism is a public testimony to a new life. End quote. On the 25th of January 1986, Erin and I stood at the head of the aisle here and made our vows of marriage to each other. That was the beginning of a new life together. It was a public ceremony. The building was full of people and in the presence of many witnesses, Erin accepted a ring from me and changed her last name to mine. And because of her love for me, she was not ashamed to outwardly identify herself with me. Now, as Christians, we are part of the church. Ephesians 5 says that we are, the church is described as the bride of Christ. We are part of the bride of Christ. And we who love the Lord Jesus Christ and have come into union with him as the bride of Christ, we take upon ourselves his name. We are called Christians. And to receive baptism in his name is like receiving a wedding ring. It's an outward identification. It's something that marks you as belonging to the Lord Jesus. If we love the Lord Jesus Christ as part of his bride, then shouldn't we identify ourselves with him in the way that he asks? Why should we be ashamed or unwilling to express our love to him before others 
in his appointed way. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ and you've never been baptised as a believer, then I'd like to challenge you about that this morning. Challenge you to show in this uniquely Christian way that you are his. Well, Secondly, baptism openly obeys the command of Christ. Some may argue, isn't baptism just a formality started by people centuries ago? Why can't we rethink the relevance of this in light of our own culture today? Well, baptism is not a mere custom started by ancient church leaders passed down from generation to generation, an ingrained ecclesiastical tradition or a meaningless religious ritual. Now, baptism is a practice ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now let's turn to the Lord Jesus' great commission to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28. Let's all turn in our Bibles to Matthew 28. Matthew 28 verses 19. Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, or make disciples of all nations. That's what the word teach means. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Both the Greek text and our English translation agree. Jesus commanded baptism for those who would be his disciples. I I find two things very, very interesting about the context of this command. First, look at the words that Jesus used in the preceding verse, verse 18. Verse 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore, therefore go ye. And teach all nations, baptizing them. The word for power, all power is given unto me. The word for power is the Greek word exousia. means authority. So Jesus bases his command that we baptize. He bases that command on his complete authority over all of creation. I have all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and teach and baptize. Jesus is not pleading as a religious recruiter, hoping that some people will take up his cause. He's not standing there even as a great teacher instructing about this mystical thing that he calls baptism. He's not even acting like a spiritually wise man appealing to us about the advantages of baptism. No, Jesus expressly connects his directive about baptism to his authority. The fact that he is God over everything, Lord over everything. And even if there were no other reasons, people should be baptised. Simply because the king of the universe, the one who made us, the one who owns us, the one before whom we will stand to be judged ultimately, he is the one who has actually commanded it. So there is an issue here of submission to authority, which is foundational to the whole matter of baptism. The other thing for us to observe here is what's on the other end of Jesus' baptismal imperative. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. 
And the Greek word for world there is not cosmos, it's ion. Ion, age. He says, you have my authority to do this. And you have my presence with you as you do this. And my authority stands before you, behind you. And my presence will continue with you until the end of the age. This tells us how long we're to do this for. In other words, the king's commandment is in force until the end of the age. And while ever there's a need to go abroad evangelizing, and as long as people need to hear the gospel and become followers of Jesus Christ, it is his will that people receive baptism and that churches, local churches, administer baptism. He didn't make baptism optional for different cultures and different times, different personalities, different preferences. It's something for all nations until the end of the age. And so for a disciple of Jesus Christ, for a Christian to know about baptism and then to do nothing about it, not to submit themselves to baptism, I mean, how, how do we account for that? I can think of a couple of possibilities, certainly in respect to adults. One possibility is perhaps there's ignorance about the issue. Perhaps you've never really understood the full significance of baptism and maybe, maybe you've been taught wrong in the past and you think that being Christian or baptised as a baby, that's sufficient. So it's possible that we might have some unbaptised people because of ignorance. Secondly, perhaps pride might be part of the issue. People who have allowed a long period of time to go by since their conversion. They've known Christ as their saviour for a long time. They've been involved in church. They're known as Christians. They understand baptism, but they've never yet been baptised. And it's a little embarrassing for them now to acknowledge that they haven't obeyed the Lord for a very, very long period of time. And so not being willing to humble themselves and admit that they've been negligent in this area, they... They haven't been baptised. They don't get baptised. Could be could be ignorance. Could be pride. Perhaps it's indifference. Plenty of people who just just can't be bothered, can't find a spot in the schedules. Just not a priority. They know it's commanded in the Bible, but obedience to God's commands aren't isn't the main thing for them. They've got other priorities, and that's actually a sad situation to be apathetic to specific commands. To be indifferent to the very command that the Lord Jesus himself says brings honour to him and brings blessing to those who are obedient. There are people who are indifferent, haven't got around to it, been planning to do it, thought about it, it just hasn't been a priority. Fourthly, it could be that others are downright defiant. That is, I just refuse to do it. And usually those kinds of people who are just defiant about the Lord's commands are usually involved in overt sin in other areas. And a sinful lifestyle <coughs> which they're practicing you know, doesn't really fit with being baptized. You know, being coming up the front here, making some sort of declaration about my, my love for Christ, my faithfulness to him and my desire to, to follow him is actually quite hypocritical. And so that's, there's an issue there. They just, they're not willing to repent of such disobedience. 
Perhaps the fifth possible reason why people haven't been baptised is that they're, they're just not saved. Not just, they're not a true Christian. They've no desire to make a public profession of faith in Christ because you don't want to be identified with Jesus. You might come and sort of, you know, happy to be part of the, the, the congregation and, and, and be involved on the fringes as it were but you're not about to take a public stand for Christ now there might be other reasons I'm sure there's probably other reasons that perhaps maybe you can think of people are either ignorant they don't understand or they're too proud to humble themselves to be baptized or they're apathetic or they're defiant or they're not saved or maybe something else but I think all of that puts the issue back where it belongs. That it, it puts it back on us. Okay? It puts the issue back on us. If you've never been, been baptised yet as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I hope sort of this puts you sort of back to the wall in a corner where you're motivated or you need to take a step to get it sorted out, do something about it. As I said, now it could be a combination of some of those things, but somewhere... In there is where you're at, perhaps. There's a third reason to be baptised. That is, baptism openly expresses your faith in numerous Bible truths. Believers' baptism is symbolic of many things. And to submit to baptism says that you believe what baptism represents, or you believe what baptism teaches. And one thing that baptism teaches is that God is a trinity. God is a trinity. Jesus instructed his disciples to be baptised in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Okay. This is the language of identification. Baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is another way of identifying yourself with each member of the trinity. In other words, you're not being baptised in the name of Moses, you're not getting baptised in the name of Paul, you're not getting baptised in the name of your church, you're, rather it's in the name of the triune God. By being baptised in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, you're declaring allegiance to and devotion to the God of the Bible. You're saying, I belong to him. And in doing so, you're saying that you agree with the Bible's teaching that there is one God in three persons. That God is a trinity, a triune God. Famous commentator Matthew Henry put it this way, we are baptised not into the names, plural, but into the name of the Father, Son and the Spirit, which plainly intimates that these three are one. Their name is one. Now, of course, the mystery of the Trinity is beyond our comprehension. But nevertheless, by affirming this mysterious, historic, orthodox belief, you're actually denying several heresies, including tritheism. That is the belief that there are three different persons who altogether become God, but individually are not. You further reject pluralism. That's the heresy says that says that there are three gods. You further reject Unitarianism, a belief that, that there is that affirms that there is one God. 
but which denies the deity of Jesus and the deity of the Holy Spirit. Additionally, you also reject modalism, which teaches that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were never God simultaneously. Now, even if you've never ever heard of these dangerous theological errors, when you are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, you align yourself with the truth of the Trinity of God. Baptism in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost confesses that you believe in each member of the Trinity is in, and each one is involved in your salvation and that you are brought into a relationship with each. God the Father designed the plan of salvation before the foundation of the world. God the Son gave his body, shed his blood, died in agony upon the cross in order that we might be right with God. And God the Holy Spirit opened our eyes and helped us to see our need to be reconciled to God and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving work. New Testament baptism affirms that God does his saving work as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. You know, we often sing the song, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. And that's an important message to us. We have it displayed constantly. And yet emphasising that Jesus Christ is the only saviour. Some Christians then emphatically tell you, you only need to get baptised in the name of Jesus only. But the thing is, Jesus doesn't save apart from the Father or independently of the Holy Spirit. Christian baptism was designed by Jesus to acknowledge the role of each person of the Trinity in our salvation. The second thing that baptism teaches is that your sins have been washed away. Now, water baptism doesn't actually wash sin away. It symbolises, it represents, it illustrates the fact of cleansing. The baptismal water, which wets the whole body, pictures the cleansing of our whole soul. The outward act of baptism portrays the inward purification that has come to us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have their sins washed away, then observe the ordinance of Christ's baptism that illustrates it, declares it publicly. Let's turn over to the book of Acts, please. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. At the end of his famous sermon to thousands gathered in Jerusalem, Peter proclaimed, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now some have taken the words, Be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, that phrase... Some have taken that to mean that forgiveness or remission of sins, forgiveness of sins, and the reception of the gift of the Holy Spirit, Spirit occur at the time of baptism. That is, baptism is a requirement for salvation. Now that conclusion is wrong. Let me try to illustrate it this way. If you were to see a poster that says, Wanted John Doe for murder... That poster is not saying that we want John Doe to come here for the purpose. We have a job for him. We have an assignment for him, for murder. 
No, rather what's saying is that we want John Doe to, we want to see this man because of something he's done. He has already done, something has already happened. Well, in the same way, the Bible teaches here that those who have repented of their sin, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, they should, they should be baptised for or because they have been forgiven of their sins. Jesus, uh, Peter is saying here that people who repent and believe are given the gift of the Holy Spirit when they repent and believe. And such people, for this reason, should be baptised. And that's what happened historically in the book of Acts and all through the book of Acts and is taught in the epistles that those who've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because he has saved them, that's the reason why they should be baptised. Question, have you repented? Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven your sins? Have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Are you born again? If so... Because of this, you should be baptised. The third thing that baptism teaches us is that you've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Your submission to baptism announces your faith in the Bible's teaching about a believer being identified with Jesus Christ. Let's turn over please to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Look at what the Apostle Paul says about this great doctrine in verses 3 to 5. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Now you not that so many of us as were baptised into Jesus Christ were baptised into his death. Therefore we buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now it's important for us to understand that the baptism spoken of here is not primarily water baptism, but spiritual baptism. When we are born again, we're spiritually placed or baptised, immersed into Jesus Christ. By virtue of our physical birth, we're in Adam. When we're born again, we are placed in Christ. It's like, imagine us you know, being a letter. We are the letter placed in an envelope. And the envelope has written on Christ. Okay, that's our new identification. We are in Christ. So spiritually speaking, we've been taken out of Adam, no more part of all that he was and what he did, and now we've been placed or immersed, baptised into Jesus Christ, into one body, the body of Christ. And what that means is that when God sees us, he doesn't see us now for what we are in Adam. He sees us for what we are in Christ. Now obviously these passages do not teach that we're physically placed into the human body of Jesus Christ. So this baptism spoken of here has been done in the spiritual realm. This is mysterious, it is true. But spiritual unity is something that God has created between Christ and those who believe in him. Now notice that in Romans 6 verses 3 to 5, God accounts our unity with Christ from the time of his death and resurrection and credits us with those benefits. In other words, 
God considers what happened to Jesus has happened to you because you're united to him. And in that sense, all the punishment that was intended for your sins has already been borne. Everything that was intended for you has been borne by Christ. And there's no more suffering for us because of it. And we have been risen from the dead, our old life, because we're united with Christ. Never subject again to the penalty of sin. Now I know this is a hard thing for us to comprehend. But let's come back to the illustration of marriage. When you marry, you assume mutual ownership of everything that your spouse possesses, including their debts and their wealth. And even though you didn't earn or merit either of those things, they become yours. Similarly, when you are married to, that is united to Christ by faith, you share in the accrual of his work. In his love, he takes upon himself our debt, all of our sin against God. He pays what's due. But he also allows us to share in his wealth, in his righteousness, in his acceptance with God, in his eternal life. All of this becomes ours. The value and the accomplishment of what Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago becomes ours now and forever. The moment we get saved, we're spiritually united with Christ, immersed into Christ. Now here's the point. Water baptism symbolizes this unity. Water baptism is a statement of faith that you have been placed into, immersed into Jesus Christ and bound to him spiritually. You died with he died. You raised to newness of life even as he is. And receiving water baptism expresses your belief that you've been spiritually immersed into Christ and united with him. Here's a question. Why would anyone who has known the immeasurable blessings of eternal union with Christ, why would any such person not want to receive the sign of it, which is baptism? The fourth thing that baptism teaches us is that through Christ, God has given you a new life. Baptism announces to the world that you have new life in Christ. When you go down in the water, it's a picture that you've died. When you come up, you've raised again. What a wonderful picture of newness of life. It's a vivid picture, a living testimony to the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things passed away, all things become new. I've been changed. That's what your baptism exclaims. I'm not the person I was before I became a Christian. I'm alive to God now. I have a different life, different thoughts, different actions, different heart, different perspective, whole philosophy of life, purpose and goals, all new. Old things passed away. And we see the symbolic connection between baptism and the new life. It's suggested for this in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore we're buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, as we noted earlier, this text speaks of spiritual baptism, being united with Christ. But the reality of it is symbolized by water baptism. 
And when a, bapt when a believer is baptised in water, they give testimony to their new life within and pledge to walk in newness of life. Now, there are no Christians who don't have this spiritually. Why then are Christians who don't want to display this physically in water baptism? Maybe it's ignorance. Well, I hope you're learning some things today that enable you to do what you need to do. Maybe it's pride. And hopefully you'll humble yourselves to be baptised. Maybe too apathetic, indifferent to this matter of obedience or defiant or simply not so. I hope that either of those things would be addressed as a priority today. You notice on the bottom of the sheet I've also included three practical principles regarding baptism. Let's conclude with these three things briefly. Baptism cannot secure the possession of salvation. Baptism is not a saving ritual. Actually, it's not a ritual. It's an ordinance. But either way, whatever you call it, it doesn't save a person's soul. We've already made that point clear. But it can't be overemphasized because the idea of salvation through baptism is a common think, a way of thinking in, in many people's minds. And yet a person could be baptised on the hour, every hour for the rest of their life and still not be right with God. Even though baptism is an act of obedience to Jesus Christ, it's not a saving act. The only saving act in history was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's our responsibility simply to believe in that work, not to try to augment it by baptism. Baptism cannot secure the, the possession of salvation. But secondly, baptism can strengthen your assurance of salvation. Now, scripture reference there, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. There, Peter connects baptism with the answer of a good conscience towards God. In other words, if you neglect baptism, you can expect some consequences in your conscience. A sing, this, the simple act or the single act of being disobedient to the command to be baptised can mean the difference between you having or not having the assurance that you are right with God. On numerous occasions I've read of Christians, young and old, who were eventually, after some while, baptised, but for a, quite an extended period they procrastinated about it. After they were, became Christians, they were taught about baptism. They, they hesitated. The longer they delayed, the more uncertain they became in their relationship with Christ. However, following baptism, their drooping spiritual life flourished like a wilted plant, newly watered. I read of one case where not only family members but also unbelieving friends remarked about the change in a person's life following their belated baptism. The root of this woman's relationship with Christ deepened as she became, and she became more fruitful. Charles Spurgeon said that before he obeyed the Lord in baptism, he was afraid to witness. He says, quote, But after I was publicly baptised into his death, I lost all my fear of man. I've never been ashamed to own my Lord from that day to this. That coming out boldly for Christ was like burning the boat behind me. No retreat was possible after that. 
nor have I ever wanted to go back to the world from which I came out. Do you struggle with being a bold Christian? Do you sometimes doubt the assurance of your own salvation? If you claim to follow Christ, but you've never obeyed his command to be baptised, then your doubts are yet another signal of what you need to do. Finally, concluding point, baptism is for you if you, are, if you know Christ as your saviour. If you have experienced symbolised baptism by being saved, but have never been baptised in water that illustrates that symbol, then you need to attend to that matter. You need to attend to that matter. It's easy to understand why someone who has never been united with Christ would have any desire for baptism. No problem understanding that. But why? But why would anyone who has come to know Christ and received the gift of eternal life refuse to identify with him in the manner that he's prescribed? If others, perhaps even you, will proudly wear an item of clothing that announces your loyalty to a certain team or even a certain brand, but then not to be willing to publicly identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. There's an issue there that needs to be resolved. The question that I put to you, to adults and to young people who are of age, the question I put to you this morning is the same question that Ananias put to the newly saved Paul in Acts chapter 22 verse 16. Ananias said to him, And now why tarriest thou? Arise, be baptised. And he was. And brethren, you owe it to your brethren. For one of the qualities of a healthy church is that the people in that church observe the commands of the Lord. They observe the ordinances that he has prescribed. They observe the ordinance of baptism. You owe it to your brethren to help the health of the church. But more importantly, most importantly, you owe it to the Lord who gave everything for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the ordinances that you've given to the church. Uh, thank you for the instruction concerning uh, both the Lord's Supper and uh, baptism. We see that both are necessary for us. Uh, thank you for their gracious provision and blessings that they are continue to be in our lives. And Lord, I do pray for uh, any uh, who are here today, uh, any who, anyone who's unsaved, uh, Lord, I do pray that they would understand today that Christ is their only hope of salvation. Nothing that they can do uh, will ever save themselves. No good works, no uh, ordinance, uh, no fulfilling certain rituals will ever save their soul. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can do that. I pray that they come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved even today. Lord, for people who are Christians but have not been baptised, 
Uh, Lord, I do pray that uh, whatever the blockage is, whether it was ignorance uh, or pride uh, or indifference uh, or defiance or rebellion, whatever the issue has been to date, uh, Lord, I do pray that you would uh, deal with them, help them to uh, come to you with those issues and do business with you and uh, to take those steps forward uh, in obedience. Uh, Lord, this is our prayer. Pray that people would embark upon the pathway of, of obedience today. And may all of us continue to walk it together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Please take your hymn book and turn to our final hymn, 400.